Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, I'll make a start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you that you love us and uh, like Lydia was praying you, you don't um, you don't give that lightly you don't give it in pieces but you don't take it away uh, by way of punishment or coercion um, you don't give it away based based upon our performance or our orientation but you just love because that's what love is that's love is freely given love isn't coercive it isn't trying to justify itself it isn't trying to um, be a reward it is its own end. It is its own uh, life. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love that you've lavished upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, right, so today I'm going to talk about uh, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, it's actually quite an interesting process to kind of prepare. I, I was preparing for next week. Me and Pete swapped, and, and, and it's like one of those things, you know, like the tempta- the three temptations. You kind of heard a lot of things said about the temptations, what they all mean, what they all represent, what um, you know, lust of the f- flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, and stuff like that. And we have all these like little, nice little triads that go around those three temptations and how they work. And, and I thought, oh, it's, it's going to be you know pretty easy, just say something that everybody's heard, um, or try and be really special and say something that no one's ever heard before. And it's kind of like, so I just sat with the text a bit and, and just just kind of tried to see what came out of it within the context of kind of this Lenten anticipation of, of uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And all within that kind of overall uh, narrative that we're working through, that kind of abundance, the life uh, that bursts through death. And, and trying to kind of juggle all of these uh, various strands and just seeing... Um, you know, where it'd go, basically. Um, so today I've kind of arrived at this point where I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to talk about what it is to be a son in the family of God and, and what it is to resist the devil. I'm not sure how I got there, uh, but it felt quite compelling to me. And so this kingdom, we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of love, the kingdom, and I love how Paul says it in Colossians, you know, the kingdom of the son whom he loves versus the dominion of darkness and what i found that as i've uh, kind of read and, and prayed and, and and listened over the last kind of few months is that everything becomes quite stark which is really weird because you know when i first became a christian everything was really stark you know it was really black and white there was us and them light and dark love and hate etc and then kind of you go through this phase of, of where everything's like more nuanced everything's gray like there are there are no really clear-cut things and then all of a sudden I'm coming to this point again where everything's polemical you know like everything um is becoming more clear-cut but in weird ways so there is there is no longer an us and them the line of division runs right through myself and then all of a sudden things like Romans you know seven you know make a load more sense like why is it that i do the things that i know i shouldn't do but i find it so difficult to do the things that i should you know 
that I should be doing. And, and, and it's like there's a war inside me, that, that there's a war of, of this life, this abundant life that is breaking forth, this life of, 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 of sonship uh, versus this kind of inclination. And I haven't quite fully explored it, so I'm not going to kind of deliver any sort of theological uh, statements or judgments to that effect. You know, uh, I'm holding it lightly. Um, so take what I say equally lightly, if you will. But, yeah, I want to talk about this kingdom, what it is to be a son, and what it is to resist the enemy. And in a world dominated by indifference, suffering and violence, love, to actually love, is a heroic act of resistance. Uh, I didn't say that, Richard Beck said that. Um, This Holy Spirit-empowered, self-given love is the only way that we can exist in a world of cruelty and tragedy and beauty and wonder. You know, every day... We all encounter grief and stress and brutality. And the only way that we can affect the world with any sort of transformation, with any sort of deliverance, with any sort of salvation, if you will, the only way that we can bring liberty or or deliverance is by kind of eschewing all these ways that the world is orientated and, and taking up the way of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. You cannot affect change in a world by becoming like the world. You know, the devil cannot drive out the devil. The kingdom divided, you know, will fall. Jesus, at no point in his entire ministry, became anti-Jesus to accomplish the ends that he was seeking. And this is really important because we talk about um, the ends justifying the means but in actual fact, the means define the ends that you get to. And I'm going to kind of unpack this in a little bit. And this is all about how we behave as sons in the kingdom. And take sons as gender neutral, not like, you know, however you want to take it. But the only way that, as Christians, as followers, that we can affect a change in this world is by being different, not the same. And, and this is, is actually what I'm discovering is, is at the core of sonship. Uh, we can call it being faithful to one thing rather than being faithful to another. Paul in Romans talks about if, you, if you're a slave to righteousness, you're no longer a slave to sin. But be aware, you are a slave to something. There is no middle ground. There is no kind of ambiguity in it. You're either a slave to one or the other. You're either following God or you're following not God, essentially. And it is that, it is that stark. So, the temptation of Christ. Why am I talking about sonship? Well, when I was reading the text, and I've started reading the Bible more um, like literature, less like a theological tome of statements that I have to uh, assimilate into some sort of belief system, and just reading it as, you know, you might read a biography or you might read a story, because the writers are absolutely brilliant. And by relegating the Bible to just some... A book of facts about God, you, you kind of suck out all of the life and all of the beauty and all of its life-giving power. But when you, re- when you start to open it up and read it like this beautiful unfolding work, you know, like, I don't know if you all have this experience, but have you ever fell in love with literature? You know, like, I, I got completely immersed in Lord of the Rings as, as a teenager, and it was just kind of this anticipation of what is unfolding next. But if, if, if we treat the Bible as less than that, then you never have that joy, that, that love, that, that, that vigour that comes from the text. You know, what is coming next? What are they setting up? How are these cues in the text 
building towards something. And yet we know, we talk about it quite tritely, that this is the story, it's his story, you know, history, it's his story, and yet we don't treat it like this. So when I came to reading about the temptations in the wilderness, it became apparent that it was all one piece with the baptism. And then I'm going to use uh, Luke today, we could have easily used Matthew or even Mark uh, to accomplish the same ends. But the first thing you have to notice, if you start reading the Gospel of Luke from the very start and you get to the temptations, there are, there are cues in the text, and what it's setting up is that Jesus is a son. Okay, it sounds really naughty, doesn't it? It sounds really stupid, because what we start off with is the narrative of the angel coming to Mary, saying, behold, you're going to have a son. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, Mary's a woman, so it's perfectly feasible for her to become pregnant and have a child that is a male. But the important nuance is that the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Fair enough. You know, she's going to get married. She could have, you know, quite, it's not rocket science. And you will call him Jesus. It's a bit pushy. But anyway. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And notice this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. We thought she was marrying Joseph the son of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. So already the text has given us cues as to what's coming up. Jesus is going to be a son of a mum who's called Mary, but he's going to be called the son of the Most High. But with that sonship of God comes a calling. So it's not just a familial position. I have a mum and I'm a boy, therefore I am a son. Well, I have a dad, and I'm a boy, and therefore I'm a son. There's something to do with reigning over the nation. There's some sort of connection between sonship and a role to play. So it's not a position. It's not just a label within a family tree. There is a calling that goes with it. There is an outworking of sonship. So we carry on. <coughs> the boy Jesus at the temple... So they go and they, they do all of the things and then he becomes 12 and, and, and then he goes and they, they're in Jerusalem and then somehow, <laughs> parenting fail, they leave the city <laughs> and then on their way they realise that Jesus isn't with them, however that works out. And he says to them, when they finally find him, didn't you know? So this is brilliant, so I'm actually going to read out. When his parents saw him, so they identify as his parents... So the familiar relation. They were astonished and his mother said to him, Son, so she's uh, emphasising her familial relationship with him. I'm your mother, you are my son. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, so Joseph is his father, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says this with all of the disdain of a 12-year-old. Why were you searching for me? He asked. I'm a precocious child. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So Jesus is also asserting some sort of sonship, but it's not the fatherhood of Joseph, which Mary is asserting, it's the fatherhood of God. 
So we have this play of two different types of sonship going on. There's a sonship that is positional within a family, and there is sonship that is something to do with being somewhere at certain times and certain places and doing certain things. So one's positional, one is an entire life orientation. So we move on. Chapter 3, and then we have the baptism, which I'm going to come to uh, refer to quite a lot. When all of the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And note the language there, that Jesus is including himself, or the, the Gospel writers are including Jesus with people. There's a solidarity with humanity going on as well. There's a subtext of that working in here as well. <coughs> Jesus was baptised too with all the people. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on, upon him in bodily form. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He, <laughs> this is a brilliant line. He was the son, so it was thought, in case we were fuzzy, of Joseph. Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. I mean, that's a bit, it's a bit, uh, bit of a put-down by Luke, isn't it, for Joseph? It's a burn. But notice what's going on here. So, Jesus has had this solidarity with people. He was baptised with the rest of the people. There's a solidarity working there. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and this is an important point, that it is in the presence of the Spirit. There's a declaration of, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son all are in play at this point. And <clears throat> this is an allusion to Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is this kingly, enthroning psalm. So again, sonship is not just a positional thing. It's related to how you are in the world. It's related to a calling or a vocation in the world. But it's also related, um, so in uh, Isaiah 42. I'm not going to turn to these places. Uh, but Isaiah 42 is one of the suffering servants uh, sections within Isaiah. So it says, this is my servant and I'll pour out my spirit upon him to do all of these wonderful serving and suffering things. And so within that we have being a son is related to being a king somehow, but also there's, there's a, a, sud, a subtext of it's not a king how you think it's going to be. There's a way that this son is going to live to accomplish sonship. And in um, kind of the ancient world, sons, especially firstborn sons, were the representatives of the family. Why, why was the, the prodigal son such an outrageous story? Because the sons were supposed to represent the father. They, um, we would think in terms of like an ambassadorial role. They represent, you know, an ambassador represents the nation and they, they kind of have to forgo their own identity somewhat because they're representing something else. They cannot just do, you know, our ambassadors cannot just go overseas and, and do whatever they want to do. They have to behave with certain manners and, and ways because they're representing something that's greater than themselves. And this is the expectations of sons in the ancient world, that they would be representatives of the fathers. And so how they behaved wasn't just, oh, that guy's an idiot. It's, that guy's an idiot... Therefore, that looks bad on the father. So the prodigal son, the son going off into a far country, squandering the wealth, this is all absolutely scandalous. You know, This kid should be put to death by his dad, not welcomed home with, with loving arms and, and a party throne. That's why the prodigal son is so outrageous, because the, the, the sonship that he displays is an absolute shame upon the father. And so 
Sonship isn't just positional, it's to do with living in a certain way. There's a fidelity and an obedience that go with being a son. And the context of all this, though, is my beloved son. So it's not just a random uh, obedience to some sort of uh, patriarch, which it could well be. You know, in the ancient world, patriarchs were patriarchs. Just do as I say, you're my son, and you are expected to obey the rules. But God, in this statement, is saying, this is my beloved son. So the context of all of Jesus' fidelity is that it's empowered by love. Faith is empowered by love that happens first. And so we go on, and then we have this genealogy, and I don't know if you ever read the Bible and think, why why are genealogies in here? But this is making a a really potent point. So if you just look in in, in, uh, Luke 3, all you see is a massive list of the son of, the son of, the son of. I think in like the King James, it's begat by, begat, you know, there's an awful lot of begatting going on. And then it arrives at this point. The son of Seth, so Jesus, the supposed son of Joseph, all this genealogy, and it says the son of Adam, so notice again, Jesus, there's a, there's a, there's a sonship and a, kind, uh, a kinship and a solidarity with humanity, but it ultimately arrives as the Son of God. So hopefully you're following all this. And this is working into the, the temptations in the wilderness. So sonship is not just a position, it's a role and a calling. Um, it's a way of living and being in the world, being faithful to the Father. And so in this case, the Father that we're talking about is the Father God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. Adam and Israel were also, also called sons of God. In, in Exodus 4, God talks about Israel the nation as being his firstborn son. And this, this declaration of this is my firstborn son, that is what kickstarts the actual Exodus of the nation of Israel because as soon as God talks about firstborn sons Egypt starts losing firstborn sons and the thing with it is is that sonship is tested however we construe what that testing is so in a very sort of simple uh, in a very sort of simple faith we might think that God is testing us God is trying to prove whether we are his sons or not, and therefore whether he will treat us as sons, or something like that. We might want to construe it that way. Or, we might see it that the truth of something is never more apparent unless it's contested. How can you show fidelity unless there is possibility for infidelity? And then we come back to the massive question of how can love be shown true unless you have a free choice to love or to not love? You know, so that when we talk about uh, theodicy, the, the, the problem of evil, you know, why is there evil in the world? Well, because we've been given free will to love God or to, love God or to not love God with all of the hideous consequences of those choices. How can we, how can we be sons? How can we, we step into this calling of being faithful sons unless there is an opportunity to be unfaithful? Because otherwise it's nothing. There's no clarity of it at all. If you can't be hopeless, then there's, n- there's no need for hope. If you can't be faithless, there's no need for faith. 
if you can't be loveless, there is no need for love. It just becomes this kind of ambiguous thing in the middle. So, of course, there is testing. However you want to construe that comes. So, Adam was tested in the garden. Just don't touch this one. <laughs> How could Adam demonstrate his obedience and fidelity to God unless he could be unfaithful? There would be no obedience or faithfulness because there's, there's nothing else there. Adam is just some automaton. And, and he fails the test. Israel is called the sun. And massive overtones go into the wilderness. And interestingly, because of the way Jesus responds to the temptations of the devil, they fail the test. Over and over again. As soon as Moses' back's turned, they worship something else. Are you going to be my faithful people? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> why are you not looking, God? Probably not. But there is no such thing as fidelity without the infidelity. But Jesus is the faithful son. Romans 6, actually I'll turn there to read that. Paul, Paul is brilliant on this stuff, by the way. I've never really got Romans very well. Um, but some of this is making it clear. So obedience to one thing is disobedience to another. And so Romans 6.16 says this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. One or the other, you're either faithful to one, and that means that you're unfaithful to the other one. Because you can't both be slaves to a sin and slaves to righteousness at the same time. But if you're a slave to righteousness, then that's not an issue. But if you're a slave to sin, then that's not an issue. It's one or the other. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey it from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And notice, notice this language. You've come to obey. You, you, you're aligned. You're, you're allegiant to something. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now to offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading you to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free, to, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap <laughs> at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, which is, and the result is eternal life. So note that by being obedient to righteousness... The result is eternal life. And this becomes important when we start to consider the crucifixion. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. And the problem is, is we tend to read that as though Paul is trying to condemn us. You know, even though he says, you know, behold, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we think, oh man, am I a slave to sin? Oh man, that's, I'm going to die. Or am I a slave to righteousness? Oh, that's better. I feel better now. And we kind of waver between the seas. But Paul's just stating... This is how things work. If, if, you, if, you, you know, if I'm married to Nick, 
and I'm being faithful to her, then there's no possible way I can be married to anybody else. That the two things are mutually exclusive. <coughs> and the final ends of, of, of being within the dominion of darkness is always death. It's, it's not that God wants you to die. It's just that, you know, if you stick your hand in fire, you're going to get burnt. There is no, there's no malice about that. That's just a statement of fact. But Jesus is the faithful son. And how do we know this? Because he goes through temptation. And the temptations, I wonder if they are kind of like a, a plot device. Because they're kind of uh, typological for everything that he kind of goes through the rest of his life. The rest of his ministry. Um, but Jesus was the faithful son. And so he was fully consistent throughout his ministry. He never, he never becomes... Uh, anti-Jesus to accomplish anything there's no there's no point when he's like this demon's too strong so let's just stab it um, this demon's too strong let's call upon bigger demons to get rid of it um, he's never like oh well you know like this is just too inclusive <laughs> we, can't, we can't hang around with the sinners anymore we must exclude some of them so we can include somebody else yeah, we need to uh, satisfy the Pharisees because they're really cheesed off that I've been eating with tax collectors. So let's exclude the tax collectors so I can include the Pharisees. Je- Jesus never compromises on his way of loving and living. And even things like uh, Jesus never compromises on the fact that love doesn't, doesn't coerce anything. Love doesn't force anybody. Jesus offers a call. Will you come and follow me? No? Okay, that's fine. Like he doesn't say, look, seriously you need to think about it because i'm saying i'm the messiah and if you don't follow me that could end badly for you he doesn't go and coerce people he says will you follow me the rich young ruler comes to him and jesus says well you know i'm i'm not going to try and satisfy you just come and follow me no actually this is going to be really difficult for you because i'm going to ask you to do something that i know is difficult for you and looking at him he loved him and said sell everything you've got and he didn't run after him, he just let him mull it over. There is no coercion in Jesus, there is no exclusion to satisfy somebody else. That we see in Peter later on, don't we? Well, we can't eat with the Gentiles when, you know, the guys from Jerusalem are hanging around here. That we see, you know, Paul gives him a hard time about it in Galatians, doesn't he? And the thing about the fidelity of the son is that it's vindicated by the father. Fidelity to righteousness always results in eternal life. So when Jesus is put to death, he's been faithful, and he's faithful even unto death. I am going to love, and love's natural end is that I am going to empty myself so completely that the worst things that humanity can throw at me, I'll become the enemy of everybody, and their wrath will be poured out upon me. But three days later, I'll rise again, because I've been completely faithful to righteousness and then therefore the result is eternal life the father vindicates the choice that Jesus made throughout his life the father vindicates his faithfulness okay that's really important Um, that's a really important theological thing therefore Jesus led an exemplary life as an example do we imitate him as if to go through the motions of doing the things that he did do we go and spit in mud and stick it on you know maybe my eyes this has actually happened to me by the way to, to, to heal my eyes no but we live the way that Jesus lived in the spirit we live empowered by the Holy Spirit that drove him so it's always what is love 
What is the next loving thing to be doing? How do I incarnate love? How do I show my fidelity to God? How do I live out the kingdom of the Son of His love over and against the dominion of darkness? What is the next thing that I'm doing? And, and the way I'm talking there is really important too. So every calling is tested. So we've seen that Adam was tested, how we would construe that. Israel was tested, how we want to construe that. And Jesus is tested. And you know what, if we wanted to, we could find excuses in the Bible to say, well, you know, God has the devil on a leash, God sends the devil to test Jesus, God, you know, tested the nation of Israel, knowing that they did fall, you know, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, knowing that he gets to kill all of their kids. You know, we, if we wanted to read it that way, we can, and I'm not going to argue with you about that now. Um, the way the kingdom is announced, so... Jumping past the temptations, we're going to come back to it. But the way the kingdom is announced is fully consistent with the way that Jesus is, with the way his sonship is, with the way his kingdom is. It's never inconsistent, it's never coercive, it's never, it's never brutal, it's never violent. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son of his love, is characterised by life, love, faith and hope, always. And we could add grace and peace and justice and, and all of those other words that we get from Paul's list all throughout his, his letters. It's, always, it's never not characterised by those things. This consistency, this fidelity, this faithfulness, this obedience to the same thing over and over again, which, which Paul you know, kind of crescendos in 1 Corinthians 13 with love. It's always consistent with self-giving love. The method of its coming, the announcing of it, the demonstration of it is always faithful and consistent to love. It's never not. If it is ever inconsistent with it, it is not the kingdom of God that is being produced. Therefore, its inbreaking is always characterised by inclusion, inclusion of the outsider, the serving of the lowliest by the highest, compassion and not coercion, calling and not compulsion, and the provision of life without cost. That's how the kingdom always comes. It never comes by any other way. And so, on to means and ends. Because the thing is, the method and the means of the kingdom is what define the kingdom. The ends never do. We can never build the kingdom by saying, this is the utopia that we're looking for. How do we get there? Well, we want everybody to become Christians. We want all the infidels to become Christians. That didn't work out so well with the Crusades. Ends never justify the means. That, that's, that's an unholy pragmatism. And the examples abound. Uh, so from something like parenting, for example, uh, this is something I'm very aware of. Uh, I see this, these, these posts go up on Facebook which really do my head in where they talk about, you know, kids these days are just too pampered, you know. You know, in my day we used to get beaten with a, with a snooker ball in a sock or something. You know, it never did me any harm. You know, because what we want is obedient kids, respectful kids. You know, this is why society is going to pop. So we should bring back, uh, you know, smacking our kids and stuff. Uh, and the excuses, you know, like, it happened to me and I turned out all right. Okay, we're going to analyse that sort of logic in a minute. Politically, we use it as well, we deploy it. We want peace somewhere, or we want stability. Stability is the new word for peace, I've discovered, by the way. We want stability in the Korean Peninsula, or we want stability in the Middle East. And so how do we achieve stability, or how do we achieve peacefulness? Well, of course, 
will use military might. Because, of course, by using bloodshed and violence, that's always going to produce peace. Well, no, it's not. It's going to produce more bloodshed and violence. And if we were a little bit fuzzy, you know, we've got the whole history of humanity to kind of tell us that that's wrong. This is one that kind of strikes more uh, closer to home about means and ends. As Christians, I, I don't know if you guys went through it, probably not. But when I first became a Christian, I was obsessed with what is my calling? Oh, I, f- I fancy being a prophet. How do I become a prophet? The end justifies the means of what I'm doing. So I'll go to all these prophetic conferences, I'll get every prophet to lay a hand on me and prophesy over me, and I'll prophesy. Uh, by doing these things, I'll become the goal. And, and, and people get so stressed out about what their calling is, right? You know, I'm, what am I called to be? Well, I'm not going to do anything until I figure out what my calling is. Because I don't want to start down one path if my calling's over here. Because obviously, you know, just, just serving is mutually exclusive to being an apostle or something. And, and we're using the ends of where we want to get to. Well, I, I want to preach to thousands of people. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just care for my family. I want to preach to thousands of people. So my family can take a back seat while I'm pursuing my calling. As if discipleship and sonship is a career that you can plot. Well, if I want to be uh, the next Mike Pilavachi or the next Billy Graham then I need to step here and I need to be associated with so-and-so and I need to get involved with this. this uh, sonship, that's not how sons work, is it? I am a son and therefore I do what is befitting of being a son. It's always the next good thing. And let's um, just look at the logic of the parenting thing. I was smacked as a child. There's nothing wrong with me except... You think it's perfectly acceptable to pass on the violence that you experienced to your children. There is something strange about that logic. Because if I said, well, I was bullied at school and it didn't do me any harm, so of course it's perfectly fine to me, for me to bully somebody else, then we still have to see that, that vacuous logic crumbling, don't we? Means never justify the ends. It's always... What's the next good thing that I can do? Obviously, if it is a career path, then you do plot your career path. But that's not how sonship works. That's how careers in business work. Two different things. It's proven time and again that means how you do something actually define the ends you get to. If, if you beat your child into submission then they probably will cower in fear at you. But that is not a loving relationship of a parent to a child. That's somebody that's so manipulated and coerced, they've given up. If you deploy Navy fleets and armies into into a situation to secure peace, what you'll have is an angst-ridden time before war breaks out. You have not achieved peace. You've achieved anxiety where everybody's finger is on the trigger and there's a multiplication of arms because well they've got one of them so we need one of them just in case they deploy theirs and and we we get to the point of mutually assured destruction with people saying this is peace which is actually madness if you deploy 
the, the ends justify the means. You know, I want to be the next preacher that's preaching to thousands. I could probably well get there by sacrificing my family and my friends on the way, but I will not have a message by the time I get to that platform because I have, I have corrupted the very things that make up the kingdom of God that I'm supposed to be announcing. Jesus was 100% consistent and faithful to his calling as sonship. Sonship is not, a, is not just a position, it is a calling. So then, after all that preamble, let's get on to the temptations, which will be really quick, by the way. Test number one. Let's just read them. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Now notice this. Jesus is not on his own. He's full of the Spirit. The Spirit always empowers. The nation of Israel had the presence of God with them when they failed. Adam had the presence of God when he failed. Jesus has the presence of God. We have the presence of God. And I'm going to culminate, and I'm giving away my ending by getting to Romans 8, which is quite spectacular. Um, But we have the presence, and this is what enables us to live. Full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, wilderness is a massive cue for you to think of Elijah, um, the flood, to think of Israel in the wilderness. Um, For 40 days, 40 again, massive, massive cue. He was tempted by the devil, and the word tempted there isn't tempted at all, it's tested. Uh, Temptation has this idea of kind of disordered desires. Jesus didn't have disordered desires about something, like perverted, I want this. He was tested. Something in his character was being tested. So let's just get rid of that word tempted, by the devil. And so the devil, Diablos, is the same as Hasatan, the Satan. The accuser, the adversary, he was, he was tested by the adversarial one. Everything that comes at us that is diametrically opposed to love is a form of adversary, is a form of Satan. Okay, so we might, I mean I don't know how, how your demonology goes, but we might like to characterise it or to, to personify it in some way. And that's fine, you know, we can do that. But what we have to recognise is that, you know, we want to castigate people as being the devil or of the devil. But it's everything that is adversarial to the kingdom of love. So actually the attitude of, uh, of proclaiming you are of the devil is ironically adversarial to the kingdom of God. And then, so we're going to come on how, how we cope with that in a minute. Uh, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Well, duh. <laughs> the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, so what is the devil contesting? What is being tested? His sonship, which is why we've gone through <laughs> the first four chapters of Luke. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So, Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy, where God's saying... Look, you guys failed in the desert, you should really have known this. This is kind of the recapitulation of the desert test in in Deuteronomy. But why bread? Well, he was really hungry, so there's the temptation. You know, we we kind of talk about it in different ways. And the thing is, though, Jesus does actually create bread from nothing to feed lots of people. Because the thing is, one of the signs of the Messiah, apparently, was that he'd be able to provide for the poor. And he does so later on. So why is it a test? Because Jesus goes and does it, right? He does it twice, you know, 5,000, 4,000 people. Uh, And the problem with it is that 
The test is to use power to reveal yourself and motivate a following, to coerce people. Notice the order which the devil is testing Jesus to do it in, and notice the order which Jesus actually does it in later on in his ministry. Because the thing is, bread's really important, and I'm going to be talking about this next month, I think. I could hold it here as a carrot, make me Messiah, and I'll give you this. But what Jesus does, he has compassion on people and realises that they're hungry, and gives them the bread. The outcome is still the same, by the way, because in John it says that after he fed them, the crowds tried to make him king, but he retreated into the wilderness. He didn't use it as a means to his messiahship ends. Because, and this is really important when we talk about the economy of God, bread, the ability to sustain life, is a given. It's not a reward. It's not something that's given later on. It's a given. It is a right in the household of God. You have a right to life. And we see this because... In Genesis, it talks about Joseph and and Pharaoh. Pharaoh gathers all of the food and people come to Joseph and say, give us bread. And Joseph says, give me everything you have before I will give you bread. That is the kingdom of the enemy. That is the Pharaoh's kingdom. Because we see God in the wilderness, I will give you bread to live. You don't have to do anything. Just eat as much as you want. Just don't stockpile it, because when you start stockpiling bread, we get systems like Egypt. You, you are allowed bread to live. You are allowed the right to life. That's a basic, that's a given in the kingdom of God. It is not given as a reward. God is not giving you gifts, Luke, because you, you sing. You are given gifts because he loves you. Temptation 2. Kingdoms, social, political authority. Receive your kingdoms because the kingdoms have been promised. Psalm 2, which is what God spoke over Jesus at the baptism. Satan echoes Psalm 2. It says, this is my son and you'll be given the kingdoms of the world. Psalm 2 verses 7 that, that God says to Jesus. Devil quotes Psalm 2 verse 8. Have the kingdoms. Avoid all that suffering. Avoid the cross. The problem is, is if Jesus inherited the kingdoms of the world, he'd have the kingdoms of Caesar and Pharaoh. The kingdom that Jesus wanted to inaugurate was the kingdom of self-sacrificing love. That could never be given by the devil. No thanks. And Jesus, again, retorts from Deuteronomy, which is God's correction to Israel for their failings. Temptation 3. Angelic rescue. Cast yourself down and let the angels bear you up. Psalm 91. And the thing with this is, this is, this is really uh, stunning. So the brother of um, Jesus, he was killed for blasphemy uh, later on in, I don't know, AD 60 or something. And how he was killed, he was stoned to death because that's the punishment for blasphemy. We see that in the, in the, in the laws. And, and, and the way they killed blasphemers was that they cast them down from the walls of the temple into the valley below. And stoning, we think it's throwing stones at somebody. No, you toss them off a cliff and drop stones on them. 
This is how James was killed. That is the punishment for blasphemy. That's why when Jesus, a few, a few short lines after this, when he proclaims himself in his hometown, they try to throw him off a cliff because they're going to stone him for being a blasphemer. So the temptation is this. Make your claims, Jesus, but avoid the consequences of your claims. You are going to be known as a blasphemer for what you're going to say. Jesus knew this. And the devil knew this. But how about you go right to the very end, but then you miss the punishment for it. And we see this recapitulated time and again. So Peter, when, when Jesus says, you know, guys, um, how, this is how it's going to end. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Peter, Jesus, that's a lousy idea. <laughs> Seriously? Bad. There's just rubbish marketing, mate. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Is he being particularly hard on Peter? No, because that's exactly what Satan offered him. Do the thing, but just miss, miss the grisly bit. You know, like, watch the Passion of the Christ, but, you know, miss the second half of the film. It happens again on the cross. He could save others, but he cannot save himself. Come down off that cross if you are the Messiah. That's the temptation. Make your claims, but avoid the punishment for the claims. And Jesus says no, because the kingdom I'm bringing has to go through this as the ultimate demonstration of faithfulness and love. So, Jesus was absolutely faithful. So, for some reason, I, I jumped to, to James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't he? Every time he resisted the devil. How did he resist the devil? He just was faithful. Sometimes w- when we get into our uh, spiritual warfare mode, we like to shout really loudly or sing really loudly or do things really loudly or anything really loudly. As if the devil's going to be scared by violence or volume. But actually, our resistance in a world of cruelty and a world of indifference is love. Is the next loving thing. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Just be faithful. Just love. It's not difficult. It's not glamorous. In the nitty gritty of everyday life, it's when you encounter that person that you really hate. And you find in yourselves that you can muster a genuine word even if it's just hi that is resisting the devil that is being faithful to the kingdom of God our resistance is being obedient to God a loving faithfulness to the one who has always been and is always and always will be lovingly faithful as demonstrated by Jesus who was fully consistent with the kingdom that we proclaim he was fully consistent all the way to the cross and beyond it And he was rewarded. He was vindicated. Our resistance is a concrete way of living. So how? The first thing is, all of this is by the Spirit. The Spirit is a conspicuous part of every single statement. The Spirit spoke to Mary. The Spirit hovered over Mary. The Spirit was with Jesus when he was baptised. The Spirit was the one with him in the wilderness. And so I'm going to finish with this because I think time's probably going on and I've far exceeded uh, Steve's 34 minutes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is Romans 8, uh, verse 12. 
We have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. How, what is your sonship? Being led by the Spirit, being faithful. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share His sufferings in order that we may also share His glory. Skipping on then to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for, the, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice those weird verses that oftentimes I usually skip about trouble, about being put to death. But notice how that's fully consistent with being faithful to a self-giving, loving kingdom. These things will not separate us from... When we face those trials, this is going to be really painful for me to try and be consistent and faithful to being a son of God. So I'm not going to do it. Those things don't separate us from God. And the other thing, so that's the negative side, well, if I fail... It's still not going to separate me from God. But if I do it, and I do incur pain, we incur pain every day in life. We incur grief, we incur tragedy every day. But if I do it in faithfulness, even though I feel my heart breaking by facing it, that pain will never separate me from the love of God, the source of the life that enables me to go through those things. So if I fail, I'm still loved and I can pick myself up or better yet, God will pick me up and I can try again to be faithful because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if I push myself or if I am led by the Spirit into that wilderness of grief, of pain, of sharing in somebody else's grief and pain, of being uh, castigated because maybe we do speak to Muslims or include the poor and homeless or the types that we shouldn't like politicians or actually, I don't know, leap to the defence of Donald Trump for some reason and I get castigated by everything, everybody else and even then even though it hurts and it feels like I might be distant from God I am not separated from that life giving power of God um, I'm not sure how that went but anyway Heavenly Father thank you that you're with us that you love us that your spirit empowers us to live in love and fidelity to your great kingdom and that Father help us by your spirit to be uh, obedient and faithful sons to, to live in a way uh, that is consistent with your kingdom in every opportunity that we get in every test that we face to not live in that way 
that Father, by your Spirit, um, you would help us, you would remind us that we would not be justifying ourselves by uh, the ends that we seek, but Father, that we'd have our eyes open and our ears open to, to see the next good thing that we can be about. In Jesus' name, amen.